to go on in James 4, we go on to verse 12. The sermon is entitled, Being Small Enough to Be a Big Help. Can you, let me ask you, can you for certain know my motivation for preaching this sermon this morning? No, you can't. You can guess, but you can't for certain know my motivation for preaching God's word this hour. If the truth be told, I don't always, always know correctly my motives for doing anything that I do for Jesus either. God, of course, is the only judge that's qualified to judge my motives in Christian service and all of your motives in Christian service. There is only one judge that's capable of that, that has the right to do that. Therefore, we are wrong, and on wrong, shaky, thin ice, we say in Canada, we're on thin ice if we start trying to judge another person's motives, because that's God's job. Last week, we looked at verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. We said last time together that under the title, Slander Under the Steeple, that it's a very serious thing when brothers and sisters in Christ speak ill of each other in a church family. We said it was like a snake slithering into a sack lunch. And when you come upon that snake in your lunch, it turns off your appetite to the sandwiches. When slander, speaking ill of each other, behind each other's back, comes under the steeple of this assembly or any other assembly, it takes away the spiritual appetite of those under the steeple, and it takes away the spiritual appetite of those outside of Christ that we are seeking to win to Christ. So slander is a serious problem. This morning, we are seeing another manifestation of worldliness that's a problem and is judging each other's motives. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? God is asking us in this verse, who do you think you are that you would try to judge someone else's motives? God is saying, as it were, I'm the only judge who has the right to do that. I'm the only lawgiver. Don't try to judge other person's motives. The verse says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? This verse is calling in a very profound and direct, right-in-your-face manner to stop judging your neighbor because you're not qualified. There is only one who is qualified, and that is God Almighty. He is the one and only judge. He doesn't need our help. When you think about it, any judge is very uniquely qualified. I mean, if you're a human judge, you must know the law, you must know the facts, you must know the legal system and its procedures, you must know human nature, you must know legal precedents, you must know proper balance of mercy and justice. If you're a human judge, you must be absorbed in principles and not in personalities. You must be above bribery and above corruption. And may I announce this morning 
There is only one being in the universe who is all those things in perfection, and it isn't any one of us. It's God, the lawgiver and the judge. I mean, God is the one who perfectly knows the law. He wrote it. God perfectly knows the facts. He's omniscient. He knows everything, and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. God perfectly knows the legal system and its procedures. He fulfilled them. Christ fulfilled them all on the cross. And God perfectly knows human nature. He wrote the Bible to explain human nature to us. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, was incarnate the first Christmas so that he could experience what it's like to be human. Going on, God perfectly knows the legal precedents. God has a photographic memory, and he is completely consistent with his character and former decisions and rulings. God is perfectly the one who knows a proper balance, a perfect balance of mercy and justice. It's the gospel, and it's the cross. There, the grace and mercy of God at the cross met with the wrath of God against sin, and they kissed at the cross when Jesus died for your sins and mine. God is perfectly without prejudice and bias. God is perfectly fair. God is no respecter of persons. He accepts people from every nation who fear him and who do what is right, according to Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. God is perfectly absorbed in principles and not in personalities. God majors in redemption and propitiation and sanctification And it was principle that demanded that God the Son would have to die on a cross and his personal relationship of perfect love with his Father didn't stand in the way of the Father sending the Son to the cross, nor did it stand in the way of the Son going to the cross, knowing that for some hours while he bore your sins and mine and the world's sins, that his Father figuratively, as it would, would turn his back on an eternal, unbroken fellowship with the Son, as he bore our sins. And the Palestinian afternoon sky went jet black, and the earthquake in Jerusalem was so strong as Jesus shed his blood on the cross that the graves in Jerusalem of believers shook so hard and opened, and dead people rose from the dead. Our God is perfectly immune to bribery, and all corruption. Our God is holy. He cannot be tempted by evil, and he tempts no one to evil. James 1.13. Now, knowing these qualifications of a judge, how could I dare to try to judge one of you in your motives? Knowing these qualifications of the one lawgiver and the one judge, how could any of you dare to judge another brother or sister's motives? It is interesting to me to see here in verse 12 that the lawgiver and the judge are one and the same person. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, one and the same. The same person who is the lawgiver is also the judge. In case we miss that, after the comma, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? 
It's also noteworthy in verse 12, I believe, that this one lawgiver and judge is able both to save on the one hand and to destroy on the other hand. God the judge, the lawgiver, is both able to save those who run to Jesus Christ in faith and to destroy those who won't or don't. Twelve. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Other places in the New Testament give us a window into God the lawgiver and judge saving believers in Christ. It's called the bema in Greek or the judgment seat of Christ. The bema or the judgment seat of Christ event is only for born-again Christians. The bema in the time of the New Testament was the rostrum in the center of the community where the civil magistrates who ruled on family law and disputes and such went to the bema to pronounce their judgments in the civic sense. The rostrum or the bema was also the place where Olympians were granted their wreaths who were successful in the ancient Olympic Games. And so there's going to be a rostrum, there's going to be a bema, there's going to be a judgment seat to beat all the others that preceded it. When Jesus Christ, the Lord, will judge the believers in him. Not for sin, because he's paid for our sins. Hallelujah. But to evaluate our ministries and the motives of what we have done in his service in our lives. The first passage that talks about the bema, or the judgment seat of Christ, that I want to take you to is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. There it is up on the screen if you'd like to refer to it there. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. This is the bema, the judgment seat of Christ. It happens right after the rapture of the church in heaven while the tribulation events go on on earth. It is a long process. Imagine judging the deeds and the motives of every born-again Christian during the church age is going to take a long time. We'll have to wait our turn in line. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, the Greek here, good and bad, doesn't mean righteous and evil. It means good, worthwhile to the Savior, or bad, worthless per the Savior's evaluation. Our works, our deeds, as born-again Christians, we're going to stand before Jesus one-to-one, and he's going to evaluate the motives of our Christian service from A to Z. Z. Everyone. And either he will say, that Christian service, Rob Elliott, on that date was worthwhile. I can reward that. Or on that date, Rob Elliott, that Christian service was all about you and not me, so that's worthless. I can't reward that. From this one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.10, I want to see three things, but let me reread the verse. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, worthwhile or worthless. I see three things in this one verse. Number one, every Christian will appear before Christ. You won't have a note from home to excuse you. You won't have a doctor's slip. You won't sleep in and therefore you'll miss it. Every one of us has an appointment with the judge at the judgment seat of Christ. Every single born-again Christian, you and me. It says, the verse says, we must all appear. Second thing I notice is that this is an individual judgment. This is not me and Beth holding hands before Christ at the Bema and we being judged as a couple. This is me standing before Christ and having my turn, and then my wife standing before Christ and having her turn, and each one of you who know Jesus as Savior standing before Jesus and having your turns. The third thing I notice about the Bema from this single verse is that our deeds will either be worthwhile in Jesus' eyes or worthless in Jesus' eyes, and his is the only eyes that matter. So let's look a little more closely. Fortunately, there's more New Testament insight into the Bema. We move from 2 Corinthians 5 to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15. You know, as a teacher, I want to try to help people I teach to remember verses because the reference of Bible verses is very important. You have to know where a Bible verse lives in the Bible. Just like when you meet somebody at the bank and you want to go over to their house for tea, if you don't know their address, you could be kind of struggling. The address of a Bible verse is called its reference, the book, the chapter, and the verse. And here let me help you on the two central New Testament passages on the Bema or the judgment seat of Christ. They are both memorable. 1 Corinthians 3.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10. Look at it this way. Your kid gets out of school at 3.10 and you get off work at 5.10. Can you remember that? 3.10 and 5.10. 1 Corinthians 3.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10. All right, let's read 1 Corinthians 3.10-15 about the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a master wise builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, let each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire, with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work, not the quantity, the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, that is through the fire, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. This is interesting. This should stop me from being tempted to judge any of your motives because that day in the sun for you is coming like that day in the sun is coming for me. And there's only one lawgiver and only one judge, and don't do his work on earth. He's quite capable of evaluating all of our Christian service without any of our help. I see seven things in these verses about the Bema. 
Number one, Christ is the only legitimate foundation for Christian service. If Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, the foundation of your very life, your Christian service is meaningless. Number two, all Christian service is either inflammable or flammable. Number three, all Christian service will be evaluated. Number four, fire will be the evaluator used by the judge and the lawgiver, Jesus. And good quality Christian service won't burn, but poor quality Christian service will burn. Number six, quality Christian service will be rewarded by Christ. Can you imagine the grace, the magnitude of grace, that by grace we would be saved, spared the wrath of God that we deserve, forgiven, given a home in heaven as a gift? That is grace, and there's even more grace than that. He'll even reward us when we serve him on earth with the right motives. Wow, what grace. Good quality Christian service will be rewarded by Christ. Seventh, Even poor quality service won't cost the Christian who is given the poor quality Christian service. It won't cost him or her his eternal salvation. You can't lose a gift that you didn't merit in the first place. I laugh when I read verse 15, not because it's humorous, but because I think of a Bible commentator who's long been with Jesus Christ through physical death many, many, many years ago. Some of you know him, but he's still on the radio, and he's got a wonderful radio broadcast to listen to, J. Vernon McGee. J. Vernon McGee had this grovelly voice, and he would say this about verse 15. He said, you know, brethren, some Christians in heaven are going to smell mighty smoky. Because the works they did for Jesus are going to burn up. But they'll be in heaven because of God's grace. So I hope you remember that. Your kid gets out at 310, and you want to get out of work at 510. 1 Corinthians 310, 2 Corinthians 510 are the two main Bema Judgment Seat of Christ passages in the New Testament. So we've seen, if we go back to James uh, 4 and verse 12, We've seen there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is, watch it, able to save. We just saw the event he's going to do that, the judgment seat of Christ, and he's able to destroy. That's the other side of the coin of this judge. And the destroy event is the great white throne judgment. And if you go with me to Revelation chapter 20, near the end of this heaven and this earth, When all has been said and done and it's time to judge those who have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is one event, an event where the judge, the lawgiver, and the righteous judge will destroy those who haven't run to Jesus Christ for refuge and his cross by faith while they were alive. This is one of the most sobering and serious passages of the entire Bible. It really ought to make the believer in Christ weep. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I see seven things I want to point out in these verses. Number one, the throne will be both great and white. It will be great because no more important a judge will sit on this throne. No greater a person in human history than Jesus Christ will sit on Jesus Christ's throne. But it's white because no more pure a judge could sit on that throne. The sinless Son of God sits on the throne. Secondly, well, before I move off of that, the verse says this is so impressive, this is so exalted, this is so holy and righteous that the current earth and the current sky can't even bear to be in the judge's presence. They flee away. Other scriptures tells us they melt down with intense heat. Secondly, from these verses, every unbelieving dead person is here. From way back in the Garden of Eden, Cain all the way through to this very moment of the great white throne judgment, every dead, Christ-rejecting, God-rejecting person is in line for this judgment. No one's missing. Perfect attendance. Number three, there are books, plural, that will be present at this judgment. These are books of recording of deeds. It's a comprehensive list of every single deed that every single person who rejects Christ as Savior has ever done. Let me just say that God doesn't need a book to keep track of that. He's infinite. He keeps books so that if anybody at the great white throne judgment has the audacity to ask God, I wasn't as bad as Sally. God brings out the books and says, here are your deeds, every one of them. By the way, if you know Christ as Savior, he has dealt with all the deeds that were in our books, blotted them clean with his blood. And so books, plural, will exist at the great white throne judgment. And number four, the book of life, singular, the book of life will be present for the judge's disposal at the great white throne judgment. This is a record of all those who have trusted Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, is your name in the book? I didn't ask you if your daddy's name is in the book. I didn't ask you if your mommy's name is in the book. I didn't ask you if your brother or your sister's name is in the book of life. Is your name in the book of life? Those facing sentencing to hell, the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment, if anyone says, you're mistaken, Judge Jesus, he can pull out the book of life and say, you're not there. 
Number five, Christ's judgments at the great white throne judgment are based on what each individual unbeliever has done. There will be degrees of punishment in hell. It says that they're judged according to their deeds, the end of verse 12. According to their deeds, the end of verse 13. There are degrees of punishment in hell. Hell will be horrific for everyone, but there will be even more horrific parts of it for certain people. Hitler, abortionists. There will be degrees of punishment in hell. Number six, the lake of fire is eternal damnation. Eternal conscience, torment, and punishment. Number seven, the failure to have one's name written in the book of life confirms the individual sentencing to hell. No parole, no appeal, no mistrial. Now, when I say that the one and only lawgiver who is the one and only judge has a saving event, which is uh, emblematic at the beam of the judgment seat of Christ, and has a destruction or a destroying event, the great white throne judgment, I don't mean by destruction that he eliminates their existence. I do not mean he obliterates people in hell. I don't mean that he makes them cease to exist in hell. I don't mean that Christ annihilates them so there's nothing more left of them. I don't mean that. I mean that he destroys them in that they have an inseparable or a, a br- unbridgeable chasm between themselves and God in heaven. And when I say that God destroys, it's not that he annihilates, it's that he has issued out fit and appropriate and just, never-ending punishment person by person. So how in the world, how in the world can I look at someone in Nassau who's not a Christian and I judge their motives? That's God's job, and he's going to look after that. God helped that person to trust Christ as Savior through my witness of the gospel before they die. But if they don't trust Christ before they die, Jesus will look after the sentencing. Romans 4.12 is a power-packed verse. It's a verse that forbids us judging anyone else's motives. It's a verse that elevates the one lawgiver and the one judge, high as he should be, at the bema rostrum to evaluate the saved and at the great white throne judgment to sentence the unsaved. 4.12, once more. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? There is a profound assertion in that verse, and there is a profound question in that verse. The profound assertion is there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. That's the assertion of verse 12. Here's the question of verse 12. Who are you? To judge your neighbor. Now, we need an assembly of Christians who make themselves small enough that they can be a big help to others. 
And the way we make ourselves small enough is to stop judging other people's motives. You know the saying, silence is golden? There is a time when silence is golden. It's when you are tempted to judge someone else's motives. Just button it. Don't say a word. You don't know their motives. They may not even know their own motives. But God knows the motives. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, and it isn't any one of us. Secondly, there is a time that silence is golden with respect to not judging the motives of anybody else, but there is a time when sharing Christ is golden, and guess what? That's all the time. The fact that there is a future great white throne judgment when unbelievers in Christ singly stand before Jesus one at a time and books are opened and all of their deeds that were in rebellion to the will of God and the character and person of God will be put forth and they will be sentencing to eternal torment and torture, conscious, never-ending in hell. That ought to motivate me to share the gospel with my friend who doesn't know Jesus. That ought to peel off of me any spiritual arrogance or self-importance that I might have because I'm saved and he's not saved and I'm better. No, I'm not better. I'm forgiven. And Jesus wants to forgive him. With the same grace that he forgives Elliot, he wants to forgive Jones. Just like he spared Elliot from going to the great white throne judgment through the finished work of his son, he can spare Jones from going to the great white throne judgment by the finished work of Jesus Christ done for Jones. There's a time when silence is golden when it comes to judging anybody else's motives, and there's a time for sharing Christ. Don't miss the times to share Christ. That's how a Christian is small enough to be a big help when they leave the law-giving and the judging to God and they leave the evangelizing and sharing the gospel with the lost in their own lap of responsibility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us when we have done your job or tried to do your job of, of judging others' motives. Help us not to ever do that again. Help us to leave that with you. For those of us who know you as Lord and Savior, may we be marveling at your mercy that we would not have to be in the line for the great white throne judgment. And help us to be mindful that we will be in the line for the Bema judgment seat of Christ. So help us to ask you to judge our motives all the time. All the time. And to throw away the bad motives, repent, and assume good motives. Lord, bless us as small people who can be a big help. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.